Hello, and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Every music scene has a few members who seem to have their fingers in everything, and Mikhail Stangl is one of those people. If you've scratched the surface of electronic music in Berlin, you'll undoubtedly have come across him. He relocated to the city from small town Germany some years back, and it's where he found a home for his oversized interest in adventurous electronic music. It wasn't long before he got his hands dirty behind the scenes at a string of underground venues before joining the team behind the quarterly leisure system night at Berkheim. His work on that party, along with his own Berkheim showcase Not Equal, remains a big part of what he does, though he's also a major player in Boiler Room's Berlin operation and a curator for the city's top flight CTM festival. Given Mikhail's centrality to one of the world's premier music scenes, and with Leisure System's fifth anniversary party on the horizon, we were keen to check in with him about the state of electronic music, both experimental and otherwise, here in Berlin. What we got was a candid chat about the city's surprisingly adventurous taste, the most famous room in techno, and how he brought his music fandom into the professional realm. things in in Berlin I mean we're gonna go into all of that um, sort of over the course of the interview um, but I'm curious um, you work with CTM you work on a couple of parties at Berkine um, you work with the boiler room you work with Red Bull Music Academy so when you go to like a dinner party um, and someone says what do you do what what do you how, how do you answer uh, what, what do you call what you do um, this is an interesting question because it usually when somebody asks me like that it leads a bit to an awkward awkward silence because obviously I I do quite a lot of things because I have a, I don't know maybe a short quite a short attention span or just too much energy um, I would say that I'm when somebody asks me I just say that I'm heavily involved with uh, exciting music that's that's what I do and this is why it's spread out throughout many, many related but different uh, formats. What was the first thing? Um, what was the thing that sort of started um, this whole thing going? Uh, the first thing was an affix to a video on TV in the early 90s. <laughs> that was the first thing. I, I came to Germany from, from Russia. I grew up in Moscow but came about 20 years ago with my family to the middle of nowhere in Germany and through an accident, like literally an accident, I got my hands on some jungle tapes, like the exchange student of the older brother of a kid from my, my village and he gave me that tape and I didn't know what that music was, I was just listening to it. Then at some point I heard an affix wind tune on the TV, like music, German music television, and it was kind of the same music structure. And this is when I got obsessed with music and being 
uh, growing up somewhere where there's not much to do except listening to music. This is how it started. And then uh, the first thing that actually made me come to Berlin was when I was sitting off shortly after graduating school. I was skimming the internet and I was really, really into breakcore for a long, long time. I started like with all sorts of weird electronic music, but breakcore was one of the things I was really interested in. And then I saw a poster of a party that was like every, every of my favorite musicians at that time was in one lineup and it said Berlin. And I didn't know anything about Berlin. I have never been in Berlin before, but I knew by then I have to move to Berlin if this is the city where this kind of stuff seems to happen on the regular. And this is how I ended up in Berlin without really any plan, but just with an obsession for weird music. And that's how the search began. And to be honest, it was always more or less a professional fanboyism. So I started to organized parties that I paid off my students' loan, didn't make any money, waited a couple of months until I had again money, and did another party. Uh, at some point, that kind of multiplied. That kind of multiplied. Started to work. I had always a day job, like parallel to that. I, music was always just a hobby, but a really important hobby for me. But for example, my free time, I spent working in a record store that was close by now, Denzel Records, one of the best places for music that ever been existed in Berlin. And that's where I spent my free time. Like it was a job, but it was not a job. It was hanging out there anyway. But this time I could buy records on the cheap. And that slowly, slowly drifted from professional fanboyism into full-time involvement with music. Um, so, so what year did you first um, come to Berlin? Uh, 2005. 2005. Yeah. Did, um, did Berlin live up to this sort of, this sort of um, I don't know, the idea that you had when you saw that poster with all those artists on it? I Well, it's an interesting question. I, I, I guess by back then it was because obviously my horizon was a totally different one. So I came and dived into, you know, like small town boy coming into the big, big smoke. And it completely lived up to my expectation because eight years ago, Berlin was a bit of a different place. Everybody will tell you who you invite, who had a certain face of Berlin. He will tell ah, Berlin, ah, back in the 90s, back in the 80s, it was a totally different thing. It was a bit of a different thing because it was before uh, what we now consider, which was like the easy jet set, kind of peaked. So there was the time where a couple of the clubs that we now refer to just recently opened. Uh, the whole um, open air scene wasn't really developed that far. So there were a lot of other venues, still smaller venues. There was a lot of like kind of independent stuff that happened, but, you know, in the gutter, especially like stuff like break or like noise music, you know, like industrial shows. And that was, yeah, also, yeah, it was a good, was a good summer when I came, came to Berlin. Did you get a sense at some point that um, there was maybe an opportunity to create something in the scene here. It kind of sounds like things were a little more open uh, and there was a little more room maybe than there is now. Um, well, there was definitely, I think we will come to this uh, later when we talk about what has changed in, in, in electronic music in general in the last couple of years, but it was in a sense a bit different because a lot of things that now kind of are the most important topics in dance music just happened to emerge. And this 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 momentum of emergence, this is was, was always which was always the most important for me when as soon as something new kinda, you know, like the waves started or the the, the, the water started trickle at some point where you see that something coming up, this is where where I wanted always to dive in and this is what um 
I mean, this is still happening. It's the same thing happening happening in Berlin, and there's still a lot of room to do that. But um, it has changed as in a sense that way more people are now involved with many, many little things. And a couple, like eight years ago, I think. But maybe it was just my perception back then because I didn't know most of those people. But especially when it comes to the things that happened in the last years in music, Berlin was, I mean... Berlin was the place to be next to London. What was the first thing that, that you got involved in uh, here in Berlin in, um, in terms of events? The first thing I got involved with in Berlin was back then a venue called Zentrale Randlage. Uh, it was a former canteen, like a socialist canteen in Senefelder Platz, Prenzlauer Berg. I'm pretty sure that everybody who moved to Berlin since 2008 has never been in Prenzlauer Berg because there's not much i mean prata just opened up again but back then it was a decent it was a different venue um and the central central randlage was basically a venue that hosted everything from the, the first dubstep parties or amongst the first dubstep parties to bigger like breakcore shows i remember a show with end user and bong ra where the room got so hot that everybody had to leave the venue for 25 minutes so the sound system could cool cool down really and then yeah and then we went on uh to things like you know leaf cutter john playing so electroacoustic music a little bit what you know one of the things that left over in prenzlauer berg i think is ausland is a venue that does a lot of things that back then was also happening in zentrale randlagen was, was i basically started to hang out there because i was hanging out so much there i worked a bit there you know like everything from doing a bit of booking to being the bouncer, which was basically asking people nicely to leave the drinks outside because the drinks inside are really cheap. And this was like my first involvement. From there on, I started out with doing like IDM shows, mostly like kind of this experimental, what we call IDM, kind of electronica. Hugely influenced back then by labels like Hyman, Anzen, uh, Ad Nauseam, which have warp records, obviously, but also Planet Mu. Like the first things like, the first things I think that I ever got to Berlin were Planet New Artists, yeah. So from the beginning, you were always kind of involved on, on the promoter side of things, um, helping, to put on, um, helping to put on these programs, being involved in the clubs where these programs were being put on. What was it about that side of the industry that attracted you? Um, to be honest, it's, it's quite an egoistic reason. I was just always keen on bringing music that I want to experience myself, and that has is to 95% the leading thought on everything that I do. It's, um, otherwise, I would be involved with completely different music if I wouldn't, wouldn't want that. So this was always kind of nobody was getting this kind of sound to Berlin. So I tried to do it myself. I think that's the intention of every promoter in the end. It was not, to be honest, I started like, I don't think that I have ever made a significant amount of most of those of money on most of those parties was usually leveled out with the kind of not so interesting things that I once in a while did for whatever reasons. But um, it usually it was like, as I said, obsession with the sound. And this is, I never saw myself as a promoter, you know, because a promoter is actually, I think it's quite a British or English uh, understanding of being involved in music. I also didn't understand myself as a curator because curator is quite on such a level a bit too, I think, too much to say it was just... Um, organizing parties so there's good music and you're involved with it that was that was pretty much and i'm the, the thing is i was also studying i was working so i had no much not much time to make music myself but setting up parties was kind of 
something that I was able to do in the terms of my, my environment. So that was one of the main reasons. And this is what still kind of drives me. Le also leaving a culture mark, because obviously um, with bringing new influences, new sounds to a city, you can also kind of form the, you know, the environment or kind of the soundscape of that particular environment and bring new influences into the city, which is also, I think, quite a good good part of uh, or the th one of the thankful parts of promoting parties or organizing parties. I don't want to say promoting because that aims too much at uh, profit and there is, to be honest, not much profit in most of the music that we're involved with. Sure. But were you finding, because you said that you, you were bringing in a lot of music that wasn't as present here, uh, were, were you finding that, that there was an enthusiastic audience for more experimental music, music that was sort of getting away from techno. That is, I mean, we tend to complain that in Berlin, um, sometimes we complain about that Berlin doesn't have a curious audience. That's not true. Berlin has a really curious audience. There's just too much other stuff going on that distracts the curiosity of this particular audience. Um, and this is like the thankful thing that in Berlin, even though the audience is quite small, I would say there's not much more than maybe a thousand people that are really, really involved with most of the really interesting things and are committed to going there. They just spread out on the many parties that are events that are happening. I don't think it changed particularly um, a couple of years ago. I think that just the amount of people who are interested in the stuff that's not so experimental or not so edgy just uh, grew exponentially. So the curious crowd get, gets lost in the, in the tech house carnival that, that roams around the streets. There are a number of parties that, that you're involved with um, now. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's not equal... Um, leisure system, um, CTM you're involved with now, um, which one came first? Well, f first of all, we started something that was called Contortion, uh, which was had was the first residency, a short-lived residency at the VMF Club and the last, last uh, version of the VMF Club before it on WMF. So that unfortunately closed down. And then through the record store that I was uh, working with, we started the series called Dance Hall, which ran at also a club that now closed at uh, Shejaki. There was the back room of uh, also now shut uh, Club Maria. Maria still exists as a building, but now it's called Magdalena, and I don't know what's happening in there, except that yesterday some one of the bouncers got stabbed in front of it. It's like seven in the morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so basically, if you would, from random things that had no names that just happened to contortion to dance hall, and then I joined the Ledger System team, which is like Nat Beckett and Sam Sam Barker, and also Peter Puzzle, who's also also involved. Like basically, what I was doing in Ledger System was kind of kind of the same spirit, um, and we knew each other anyway, so it was kind of logical to to join forces. And this is how I happened to end up being part of Leisure System, mm -hmm. setting up the label um, with with Nat and Sam, um, launching the international parties because Leisure System is also, Leisure System is a party that actually sums up my personal approach and also the approach of my partners to, to this kind of, I don't know, let's call it a cheeky eclecticism. You know, we, we, we love long sets, we love dance music, but we can't hear eight or 10 or 12 or 14 hours of the same. So in 
Legacies, for example, is a perfect outlet for that, having a night that's kind of coherent, but still all over the place, going from going from jobs into Venetian snares within one and a half hours. Yeah, there's there's a definite similarity between the approach that you were describing before and, and the approach that you can see in that party. What's experimental about it almost isn't the music itself, but the the combinations of music that are that are put together. I wouldn't say we're experimental. Uh, I would say we're just challenging people. I mean, the the best thing is what I what I personally sometimes miss a bit is that people are able, or that the crowd listeners are able to step back from their expectations, just listen and just kind of allow themselves to listen, even if it's something that they completely not agree with, but might maybe the, through a bit of concentration, they might find something that's appealing and not just run to the next floor when five minutes into the set, it did not hit that particular note that they were expecting. And this is a beautiful thing in Leisure System. You see the confusion on people's faces or in a lot of parties or things that I'm involved with, the confusion on people's faces who did not expect a thing to happen. That's basically a perfect summary of what, what music should kind of be able to achieve or events should be able to achieve. Has there been a moment at, at, at a leisure system event or really at, at anything that you've done where that, that balance um, between kind of throwing enough confusion in that it's fun and it may be being too much confusion and people aren't sure what to do with it, uh, have you experienced any of those moments? Uh, well, Leisure System, where there was a certain moment when Otto von Schirach was playing, I think it was in 2010, and there was a group of um, young women entering Berghain who kind of looked like they were more aiming at the housier side of things of, of the Berghain Panorama Bar Continuum. And they were confronted with Otto von Schirach being on stage doing his... his uh, uh, well, you, if you know Otto von Schirach, you kind of can can you know what noises I mean what, that he's making on stage. And the interesting thing was that you really saw that three of those girls were completely disgusted, and one slowly started to get into it and was mm, stared down by her friends and had to go upstairs uh, <laughs> because they were not satisfied with what they saw. And recently, I had an experience. I um, my good friends Oak, Oak on Downwards, I got them a gig as a support opening act for Sigur Russ in Dresden, which was a really big show. It was their second show ever. 6,000 people sold out open air stage. And between Sigur Russ and Oak, I mean, there's a lot of, there's quite a dark hole gaping in between those. And it was really interesting to see the audience because we were walking around around uh, the audience just to see the reactions and they were from uh, well this might be art to this is mo the most absurd thing I've ever seen to where can I get it this is amazing this is the blow my blew my mind I don't want to see anything else tonight again and this is kind of those a good example where I was also kind of it's proud mother goose I was like yes that's exactly what I want and I'm p perfectly happy and this applies also to boiler room to anything else that I do if 60% hate it the 30% or 20% who discover something new and the seed is planted and they go on, they experience, they share, they love and they help growing things. Those are the people that, that I care about. Well, yeah, it seems like um, just sort of based on your background and based on your, on your aims, um, eliciting a strong reaction is probably the best, the best feeling that you could have, whether it's a really positive, strong reaction or a really negative, strong reaction. Either way, that's a reaction to something new. This is, I mean, I think that music that everybody can agree on is kind of the worst kind of music. You know, if you have a room of a thousand people and you find that the 
the music that everybody's satisfied with that's that's i think that's where i would want to leave the room um and so an extreme reaction may it be positive or negative is a challenge and triggers something and it has, doesn't have to be extreme you know i'm not talking about merce ball i'm not I'm not talking about like emptying everyone's eardrums out uh, it could be also incredibly incredibly frail sounds that that require an attention and silence that there's things that are basically not listenable one of the best things that I've personally ever did, I think, was um, a concert with a band called Furpa. They do pre-Buddhist, Tibetan throat singing. They're based there from Moscow. It's some of the most psychedelic music you could hear. They released an ideological organ, and a label curated by Stephen O'Malley from Sun. Um, and this was completely vocal music. There was no electronic amplification or dance music. It only required concentration. And I think that was the concert that... Everyone I spoke with after that show was shaken in his foundations by the physical force of this this type of music. Yeah. The other party that that you do at Berkine is called Not Equal. Not Equal. Yeah. And um, that party really seems um, almost more explicitly, maybe than than Leisure System, to to sort of be aiming for those kind of really interesting musical experiences. Um, w tell me a little bit about the concept behind that party and maybe a bit of the history behind it as well. Um, Not Equal is came to happen. I mean, I personally have a strong, strong industrial and kind of, let's say, crunchy, uh, explorative music background. Um, and Not Equal came to happen as... You know, there were a lot of different kind of musical tropes that were all aiming an experimental and dark direction that were standing each on their own and were not combined by that time. And I'm speaking of stuff like when Demdike Stair just popped up. I remember on a really hot uh, summer day in London where I spent like two days tracking down the first three Demdike Stair records because it was music that I was obsessed with when they just popped up. Um, and Not Equal is not, you know, you could say or could be perceived as an industrial night but it's not it's a night where it's literally all about sound exploration so basically um this particular moment to stand, like to trust this this is where a curatorial voice becomes quite important where i mean most people don't know that i'm behind it but they trust for example berkine as, as one of the leading venues in the world that this audience kind of lets let the things happening and kind of sees what's going on and this is the most important direction it has been quite dark because there's been a lot of new found interest in dark music the whole post-industrial uh themes became quite an interesting recently i think for me so far this is i personally explored it there's a lot of nice things happening a lot of nice things happening now in berlin in this music i'm already looking for the next kind of inspiration where i could take this party for example last last time it was just two weeks ago um we had dj randall playing an equal which if you compare it to the first night that we had with them next there and he start empty set tropic of cancer doesn't make any sense at all but um in the end a lot of like people from my generation also inspired by drum bass music but jungle and seeing randall after after them like stare bashing out 1995 tech-step, really dark drum-bass tunes, and everybody was really into it. We were quite afraid that it wouldn't work out, but the people were into it, and that was a kind of 
prove the concept that uh, even though it's a, such a huge break into a music that usually doesn't happen in such an environment, there's still enough people who are curious enough and get into it, even though most of them never heard of DJ Randall. You hinted at this a little bit before, um, but I wonder what the effect of the venue is on the party. Obviously, Berkine kind of carries with it quite a lot of meaning and probably does give people a, a trust over the music that's going to be in that room that you might not get otherwise. I mean, I mean do you see Berkine as sort of central to the concept? I, I mean, Not Equal would not exist without the trust of, of Berkine, um, but also not without the room and the sheer tectonic force. I mean, you have the, the room experience of Berkine is already a quite interesting one, because if you enter... If you enter the the club, you know, if you pass the gates, you you left your jacket, and that particular moment when you go up the stairs, you start first. You only hear the mids and the highs and the bass, like the reverb of the bass. And the more you go up the stairs, slowly uh, the tops of the function one closer to to the stairs reveal themselves, and the bass impact becomes way more more present. Mm. And this particular physical experience and Berkheim as a room is essential for a listening situation where you can detach yourself from a, you know, like everything that happens outside. And that's the beauty of a club like Berkheim because it's such a room that kind of allows you to detach yourself for a couple of hours into a environment that is completely different from what you would find in your private, like, if you you would find a normal life in, in in brackets in the sense that the room itself is unique the sound system is unique uh, the setup of the flexibility of the room allows you to do so much and because the room itself is in the sound system set up in a way that you can make sonic experiences or certain details in music listenable um, in a way that you couldn't do with most sound systems that I've experienced. That is, there's, for example, uh, an interesting. There's a track by Powell, Powell, um, called I think Zero Nine. It's like just a shifting drone going with a, like a heavy distorted kick drum going from left to right. Uh, if you put that on in a Berkheim, it freaks everyone out. This is like completely. If you listen to it on headphones, it's like oh, it's a drone going from left to right. But multiplied by the room, by the physical experience, by the impact of the bass. Uh, and I think also by the excitement being in that particular iconic room, this is this is like batshit crazy experience. Yeah, especially if you are there. Um, I don't know, in, in an enhanced version of yourself, so <laughs> to say. Yeah. yeah, it's the way that you the way that you described entering Berkine and just what the room does in general. I mean, whether you're seeing. Uh, the music that's at Not Equal, or whether you're seeing the music that they play there on a Saturday night, it really is the same effect. At, th at the same time, there is sort of an expectation that people have about what the sound is in that room. Um, have you ever felt um, under pressure, maybe just, just personally, um, to give people what they want? Or is it is a big part of the way you're doing the party sort of not to give people what they want, but they, they still get the same effect in a way i think that everybody who goes into any kind of club space with a certain expectation uh, towards the sound will be disappointed because luckily most djs are too smart to uh, to be as simple as that and with Berkheim is particularly special like i i don't i don't know i mean i've been to Berkheim so many times i don't think that there's like a coherent Berkheim sound and i always recommend it's actually one thing that i say to many people who debut at one of my parties is like whatever you think people expect 
just don't do it just do your own like do what i we invite you to do just don't you know because usually that fails greatly because obviously the people come to see the particular artist and not to exp if you know if there would be something like a burkhan song then we wouldn't need to book anyone except one person that can kind of play exactly that that and then it would be not special at all yeah so um I don't know. And this is also why I would want to break. This is why I'm always happy if the doors open up in the first batch of people. Some are fans. Some are like people who were so excited that they queued up really early. And you see that, that they most likely have never listened to, I don't know, Vatican Shadow, who we had two weeks ago, or uh, to Ben Frost, who we had a couple of. Chris and Cozy, which was an amazing experience. Um, uh, and, you know, this is going to they return an hour later, come downstairs, they're gonna like this kind of blow their minds in a positive or negative way. And I love that. And the same thing I, I think also happens to a lot of DJs or people we invite who play the party, um, that they also find a way, a place or a format where they can experiment and do stuff that I usually don't do. DJ Hell is a good example. We had him together with Chris and Cozy and he mm. dived into his vast record collection and just played something that uh, connects him to Chris and Cozy because he's a big fan and he does a complete not DJ Hell like whatever a DJ Hell like set would be but was definitely nothing that anyone expected from him and he himself was really happy about it. I know a big part of the experience of being an attendee at Not Equal is hearing things that aren't expected being maybe taken a little bit out of your comfort zone as a listener. Um, have there been any sets there that have um, that, that you haven't expected, that have felt unexpected to you as the person who's throwing the party? Um, the first DJ set Rame played, like the first time we ever got Rame to Germany. Oh, I, I think I'm lying. I think Rame played once before in Berlin at Festsaal, it might, might be. But anyway, Rame played, uh, and that was still amazing because they opened up, like the contingency of the set was amazing. It went from jungle to to obscure 80s wave punk to techno stuff and i it was like i basically i wanted to get a bar stool and put it in the middle of the dance floor because by then i was really tired just sit down and listen and that, that was amazing also um ben frost's live performance was just uh i mean he is i think that he is one of the most gifted musicians that graced our earth in the last last 20 years or so uh those incredibly amazing to see the physical impact of his music um especially because um especially with his music i think that the sheer volume that the room can produce and the shifts that it, the physical shifts it creates in your body that is so loud that it's even with ear protection uncomfortable that's what's needed and for me it was a huge huge personal experience and i think also a huge turning point for the night um and as i said dj randall last like two weeks ago just having that particular sound, seeing that it works and that it's inspiring, even though most people maybe never heard this kind of, those tunes, um, that was surprising and nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, last year, you got involved in CTM. Um, CTM la last year was your first year with CTM, I right? used to work with CTM. I mean, CTM festivals also, I've attended every CTM festival since I've been in Berlin. I think CTM did... A lot of education for me because i've experienced this was exactly the same thing i only knew ctm is cool there are like three names i know and i spent every week every day uh at the festival and got educated every single night 
Um, and I was involved a bit from running the merch stand to then co-curating one or the other night. And then last year I joined the team as one of the curators. Um, and now I'm full curatorial member, how you would call it. But yeah. <laughs> sure. How does it feel to have been somebody who who sort of got so much out of attending this festival to now being involved in it. You've certainly come full circle with CTM then. It's, uh, I mean, it's a huge challenge because the thing is now, after having spent so many years with music, I wonder what impact our program or the program that I create with CTM has on the 2013 version of me. You know, like I want to be as... Educa like educational as an exciting and I want to feel that I'm still you know like even though now I'm way much further in my education and music I want to have the same feeling as I had when I stepped in the first time into CTM in 2005 and uh, when I was back then in the Maria Club um, and this is the huge challenge to create a ten, in 10 days like a 10 day festival is not a small task to create a narrative and tension and excitement over 10 days but still to work within the unfortunate um, financial implications of running a festival that you also have to deliver stuff that actually sells which is actually the most annoying part about running a festival you can't be like oh let's be a cherry picker let's take some drone there let's take some some vocal music here let's invite somebody from an obscure genre there and then we have a festival that unfortunately doesn't work um and so that to recreate that excitement deliver people a something that they can be excited about that's the biggest challenge for me personally because obviously ctm my, my colleagues there jan remko and oliver and the whole ctm team they are they must know so much more about music than i do uh that uh it's, it's a challenge to kind of be like hey is this the thing that we want to present us this is the current state of music is this what and berlin to be honest berlin is a really thankful place to do that because it doesn't matter what it happens during the year in Berlin anyway. It literally you can't you can't rely on oh we just wait you know until every label released their main releases for the year and then we just book it up because this stuff happens in Berlin anyway, and most of the things are also pay better and are better connected than us. So we have to find basically the things that are still relevant after the main topics are gone, you know, after the headline articles have been served, uh, what's still there in music that's interesting and challenging and, and current and uh, educational. And this is the good thing about Berlin because the city itself challenges you a lot to do such things. It's also the challenge in Berlin because it's, you don't have an easy life because you can't just do the obvious things. Sure. But in the end, you end up with um, something particularly unusual and unique. And I don't think that any festival that I know of can compare to the to the scope of CTM's program, which is not only current trends in music, but also related, like the whole discourse around a certain topic with its both with a historical depth, but mm -hmm. also with a outlook on related fields that is that is what i find uh, especially interesting about ctm because it's not just a venue based a concert based festival but way more than that i'm curious you you kind of talked about this a little bit before um saying that you can't just cherry pick you have to find a way to sell these lineups you have to find a way to get people in the room how do you sell music 
that is, or, or sell a program that is not necessarily commercial. Well, that leads to the point that the festival is basically, in, I would say, non-commercial <laughs> in the sense that there's not much profit to be done in the first place. Um, I think the lucky thing is um, Fest CTM as a festival was one of the first festivals of this, this kind in, in Europe, um, that there's a huge trust in, you know, and this is like the thing, I mean, I think part of, of having good a good sense for what, like music is that you also get an audience that kind of trusts you and returns and buys a ticket before even anything is announced because they know it's going to be a good experience. Sure, the venues play a big part in that. You have to create physical experience and we're quite lucky in Berlin that we have a lot of venues that we can work with, but also that there's an audience that has been educated for the festival that returns and that multiplies. Um, otherwise, you won't be. It will be would be really hard to sell this kind of music, and it's not really selling this music because um, in the end, um, it's still we talk about a fraction of a fraction of a really small market in music. Sure. So, you mentioned as well that um, putting a festival together like this isn't something that you can just do at you know at the end of the previous year. This is something that has to be going on all year. We're nearly at the midpoint between. Uh, this year's festival and and next year's festival. Um, how how far along are you guys with next year's? We are. I mean, with a festival like CTM, it's since we are not you know like we're not raking in seventy five percent overhead, so we basically can spend that on next year's edition. Most of the work for a festival like CTM is scraping together, um, scraping together money to fund the festival, which is a lot of governmental funding, institutional funding, cultural funding. Hopefully also um, some involvement from, I don't know, brands that might see something in CTM that no other festival can deliver. But I must admit that this is the hardest part for the festival. Um, As someone who, who sort of got into um, all of this sort of from a music perspective, is, uh, is this side of doing things, that the kind of finding funding, um, talking brands into sort of being interested in something that's not necessarily a commercial uh, undertaking, uh, has has that been a has that been a challenge? Do you do you really enjoy that part of it? I think that's the biggest distinction between being really serious about what you do and just throwing a party, because this is like kind of. I mean, I work now full time in, in this, and a lot of people kind of perceive that this is oh my god, so exciting! You do parties at Berkheim, you're a Berkheim resident, you do parties in all over the world but in the end this is just the outcome of three four five months of writing emails making phone calls and it's a necessity and it's fun because it's part of the creation process and it's also part of an extended creation process which means that you realize how serious actually the whole thing is in the end um i mean i would be happy if somebody would come along you know uh our foundation will be, hey, guys, there you go, half a million of euro, please do with it whatever you want, but this will never happen. But it's also interesting because it's also you get a lot of inspiration of communicating with those various instances. And it's part of the creation process because it's just not, you know, like filling up out application forms for money. It's way more. You have to actually to think about what you what you do. There's a concept behind it. And I think it's the big difference because if you're not willing to do that, then you will stay on a certain level. I mean, there's also you can also become really famous and rich with running parties. But in most cases, I think the cultural worth of those events is little to none. 
I'm not judging them as events, you know. I right. Say that there is a necessity for that, but I say that uh, quite often there's not much cultural change coming from that. Sure. And and for you, the the big payday, the big payoff is seeing this kind of long form creation payoff when the festival finally. Which is usually a cold by the end of, <laughs> of the festival. <laughs> a cold and total, total big bags under your eyes. No, yeah. it's to be honest, it's it's still like for me last year's festival. It was obviously um, Marin, to see Marina rest. I'm a really big car 93 fan i always have been and meeting the artist the first time the, the, to be honest like as i said it's basically professional fanboyism i'm still i mean i'm still as excited to meet most of those people as i would have been eight years ago even though i approached them on a professional level but i still didn't know i was like oh my god what would what what would i speak with david tibet about <laughs> i didn't know i was like knowing only him as a music persona and the same thing was in the other moment where I thought that we made it and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment when I saw Mickey Blanco in the basement of Stadtbad standing on the, on the DJ, DJ booth. I mean, what part of my brain was concerned with the equipment <laughs> and the rest was just seeing like those young people reaching out to Mickey Blanco who was like the savior-like figure on stage. This was like the moment where, that was the goosebump moment where wow. I knew that this kind of excitement, like literally only very few events concerts whatever people in berlin be able to reproduce that particular moment like that you see people's in excitement about something happening in that moment yeah and that's the payoff yeah i definitely wanted to talk about boiler room yeah um that's another one of the big things that you do and and i sort of wanted to approach it um as well both talking about what you do with boiler room but also about uh, the scene in Berlin in general. Do you? Um, well, well. First off, w tell me about your role in in the boiler room with Berlin. In boiler room, I'm part of my job is I'm the guy with a horrible accent on the microphone, <laughs> uh, the boiler room guy, or as there, there's also the chat room chose a a name for me that everybody I think is familiar with that I don't want to reproduce. <laughs> um, the boiler room, I'm basically at the moment, since my colleague, I used to run Boiler Room Berlin with Alex Waldron, who also runs Greco-Roman, who now uh, has a really interesting job in London. Um, I had to leave Berlin, unfortunately, so I'm now alone in, in responsibility. And my duties are basically, I host, I put the program together, both for Boiler Room Berlin, but also I'm involved, obviously, with the whole global activities at Boiler Room. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Boiler Room is a way of kind of taking something that's happening in one particular location and showing it to people in no particular location anywhere in the world. Here, that location is Berlin. Um, do, do you approach Boiler Room as sort of bringing the Berlin sound, the Berlin scene to a, an audience outside of Berlin? Um, I mean, if you would put it that way, then you would first, to be scientifically correct, to go down and make a definition of what the Berlin sound is. I think Berlin doesn't particularly have a certain sound. I think Berlin is a city that is a, um, I don't know the English word for it. I think due to the socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic framework that you find in Berlin that's been unique since the 70s for all of Europe, you get a certain kind of both creative freedom, but also a certain kind of traction of people into the city that no other city can reproduce. For example, London. London has definitely set, 
and I mean, London was always the most, the biggest influence for anything that I've been doing. And London always set, you know, like cornerstones in dance music, you know, with the hardcore continuum. Berlin, even though you're easy to to assume that that Berlin is, you know, a techno city or a house city, if you look at the last 10 years, uh, Berlin was as much as dubstep was influenced by Berlin as any other, like even Juke and Footwork have a couple of, like, I mean, if you look, Machine Drum wrote his last two albums, not mainly in Berlin, I assume, but a lot of it happened in Berlin, but it's definitely not a Berlin sound. But what makes it Berlin is that people come together and get inspiration and take something from all of those various experts and all of those kind of weird things that happen that kind of end up in the music. And that's not the Berlin sound. That's just the Berlin, I know, way of thinking. I, I don't know. And this is what I want to express. I'm not like, if you look at the Boy in Berlin program, obviously there's a lot of tech, like techno and house and this kind of the things that you would associate with Berlin, because there's so much interesting of that in Berlin, but there's also quite often things that, that are, kind of weird and anywhere else under the radar because also part a big part of Berlin and I think and this is like what Boiler Room is all about it's not about showing like finding a particular trope in one city and showcasing that until it's dead and done it's more about educating and opening up um I used to work before the contingency of 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 yeah the contingency of understanding music and I think that's what we do in Berlin quite well because we um, we don't have that many shows, you know, so we have always to think twice, what's the statement that we're going to make with a show. And um, we're always quite aware of what we are putting on and why we, we do that and why that's the particular thing that we want to showcase. Mm -hmm. yeah. One thing that you, you've been showcasing recently is sort of a, a kind of particular of the way music is presented in Berlin. You've kind of taken the boiler room concept and adapted it a little bit to these kind of longer sets that tend to happen at Berlin nightclubs. You've been doing these afternoon sessions where instead of having, you know, three people playing for one hour each, you're having one person play for, for three hours each. Um, am, am I kind of getting the concept right there? Um, it is, I mean, that is the thing. For example, I, I, I myself don't DJ too often outside of Berlin because simply I don't, I would love to, but I don't have that much time. But whenever I play in London, I'm always surprised when I'm put get like I'm put on 10 p.m. for one hour which is for me in not equal terms would be like three ambient records and a little bit of, of, of uh, a little bit of kick drum underneath <laughs> sure. it so and this this is the beauty also of Berlin that people have I mean I'm talking a lot about of attention and that people have the attention you know they allow uh, and it's also because Berlin is or Germany is a mark like a place where a club can be running for 24 hours without having any licensing issues, which is usually what limits, like it basically comes down to an economic necessity why DJ sets in UK are 45 minutes long, why each DJ cuts after two minutes because he wants to showcase what he wants, but he can't do that with six tracks. Um, and this is also a big part of Berlin that we that the, the audience here is used to let themselves go and allow somebody they trust to lead them for a whole night. And that it also works without having like 10 big names on a, on a lineup, but only three. But those three play for six hours and you will have uh, three times the fun. And this is the daytime session is exactly what, what we want to we wanna do with it. We just want to showcase people that we, us as Boiler Room staff, for example, the ones who make the decision on who's playing, trust. For example, Andreas Baumecker, this man has one of the 
most interesting. I've never, I haven't seen it personally yet. I only spoke with him a lot about it, and I know what he buys recently, once in a while. He has an amazing record collection. It's over twenty thousand records, that's, right? That's what he told me once. Yes, and um, that needs to be kind of showcased and and documented, I, I guess. And the same things with Miles Whitaker, who I value greatly. Um, as both, I've been once to the record shopping with Miles. It was one of the most amazing experiences ever. When he was diving into like some obscure jazz, like secondhand jazz salesperson, and tackling him about really obscure records of which and genres, jazz subgenres that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that that you know, like people have this interest in music, but still can kind of put it into a dance music context, which is not necessarily what Boiler Room is about, I think. It's not all about just dance music, just about music in general, but we happen to to help dance music to evolve. Um, the daytime sessions give the freedom of just like, you know, like a radio show, more like a radio show, really, where where it's about just, yeah, just do whatever. That's what we, what, what we tell the artists, just do whatever you want. You don't need to do three hours of continuous mixing you can just showcase your crowd rock collection if you <laughs> feel that that's what you want to show show the world and the audience and so far has been really positive feedback and i'm looking forward to more and more of those as as someone who's gone out in in berlin i mean i've sensed that there is this this kind of very underground um, ethos in the scene this sort of insular ethos in the scene uh, as well has it been difficult to you know present um people who are kind of subscribe to that in Berlin with this boiler room concept, you know, we're going to stick a camera in your face while you play music. Has that been a difficult sell um, in, in a city that often kinds of kind of prides itself on stepping away from image? Mm, well, the thing is, it's not about image. I think um, the beauty of boiler room is to give access to give people who will never have the access to this very variety um to this variety i mean if we look at it you know if we're completely realistic then half of the most of what happens in berlin is uh entertainment for quite privileged people you know what i mean and this is this is the sad truth and i'm not you know not saying that that's something everybody should be ashamed of but in the end it's quite we're quite a small fraction of society who happen to live in a place where we can be way freer than anyone else in the world and even though we can't bring and again i'm saying the socioeconomic uh environment anywhere else at least showcasing the music that's connected to that that's the great beauty of boiler room and this is what it's all about it's about the person who sits with me. you know we have one of my, one of my favorite examples is we have a couple of people like we have a lot of russians on the chat room um for whatever reasons i mean and some of them are tuning in from an island called Sakhalin. Sakhalin is um, the next landmass is Japan. So they are from like 15,000, 18,000 kilometers away. And Sakhalin is not the busiest place on earth as far as I know. I've never been there, but that's what I heard. I know somebody from Sakhalin. Um, but, you know, like they can participate. They can participate with what's happening in a city like Berlin. That's the beauty of it. And this is this is the big. So everybody who would be like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to sell out or whatever. I don't want to step in front of a camera. You're not stepping in front of the camera for me or boiler room. You're stepping in front of the camera for the people who long to witness you. And if you 
if an artist cares about the underground, then he should care about people who don't have the access, the physical access to his music, to their music. And this is what Boiler Room, for me personally, is is about. And this is the f- feedback that we get. This is completely the feedback that we get. Sort of taking this into the the context of your development as a you know as you said a professional fanboy. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like if you had had the Boiler Room back in the day when you were sort of looking to Berlin as uh, this sort of kid from a small town. Um, do you wish you had had Boiler Room? Well, in my back then, for me, this was called Soul Seek. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thankfully, thankfully, when I was young, um, my my stepfather had access to high speed internet when nobody else had it, and that saved my ass. Um, I think you know it, the, the good thing about the, the good thing about Boiler Room is, or about the internet in, in general, is on one hand you have this um, accessibility to so much stuff that pretty much everything gets completely mundane. But on the other hand, you have a strong voice like Boiler Room where people, and that's also the feedback that we get, like that we show them things they have never, you know, they picked up. And this is also when I said that the 60% are not interested in it. Don't, I don't care about them. I care about 10, 30, or 30% if we're lucky that care about that, that if you have a Boiler somebody tunes in into Boiler Room because of a big name that he knows, he sticks to it and then he discovers things that he has never, he would have never thought he would like. And this is kind of the multiplier that Boiler Room also is quite, you know, as an influential, influential uh, player. Um, player is a wrong word, completely wrong word, but um, somebody who can uh, engage people and win their trust and kind of deliver things to them. And this is this is the beauty of it. Yeah. And I personally, I don't know. I, I think to be honest, but this is, I mean, this is where you, I think you see that I'm past. 30, I mean, I turned 30 this year, is that um, back then in the old days, when where I grew up, you had to wait three months until a certain CD was re- de- uh, delivered to that one record store that existed in that city. The excitement of like, that's the release date, that's when the record comes out, this is where you have the physical product, you open up and listen to it. That was part of the exploration, you know, kind of the this kind of crate digging approach. You have to dig into the topic to find out where it is and where it's more of it. Nowadays, you have hashtags and that open up, which is wonderful because it's way easier to discover beautiful music uh, and way quicker. But I think um, uh, my personal, I was personally just with this kind of um, scientific approach to finding out about music. That's what educated me. So I think that was good that at that time I had nothing like Boiler Room. But I'm, you know, I'm now 30 and completely done as a person. So uh, <laughs> young people nowadays have different ways to explore explore uh, and mediated messages. So, yeah. Sure. You mentioned kind of earlier in the conversation, you, you know, you said that you came here eight years ago. And you hinted that things have really changed over the course of that time. Can you put your finger on what it is that's changed here? Um, well, what changed especially is that um, a lot of the music that we love and that we're involved so with, and that's actually still quite niche, became so supposedly professional. I mean, and that has really happened. I mean, music industry was always a business, you know, and it was always a part of electronic music that was business, like as business as anything else. But there was a certain freedom with emerging sounds. That was the beauty of it. You know, you just 
somebody popped up on a record, you kind of found out his MySpace, uh, wrote him an email, set up a show and went off for it. Nowadays, nobody can have a SoundCloud profile without having already a manager and a booking agent, of which the manager usually or quite often is not much more than a walking inbox um, and doesn't really contribute or in some, you know, like that, that obviously it's a bit like polemic, polemic, no, what it's called? Like polemical. Polemical, yeah. what I'm saying. But quite often you end up being in touch with people who don't particularly contribute to the career of the artist, take a huge cut of this young art, emerging artist um, money, but um, do not get them anywhere. But this creates so much, you know, like so many options and possibilities and also learning that the artist can have get lost in the process of an artist you know like if you just made two tracks and you already end up in the safe haven of having a booking agent and and uh, a manager you never get to experience the the every anything that happens outside the backstage basically yeah i'm curious what the tangible effect of that is um on on the music or on the people who are getting involved in the music but they're more interests than involved than the artists once you know because the, the, the are, managers are well the, you have you have you have way more uh parties with particular interests involved in a particular you know like in the, the into the process so basically i aware of that quite often my bookings did not happen because I could not match the financial reality of what I do with the expectation of the booking agent. I'm pretty sure if I would have spoken to the artist, it wouldn't have been a problem, which obviously is part of the whole process. But um, um, I think that it's also hurting the creativity um, and the fun uh, a lot in what we do or what the electronic or the music in general is about because this 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 professionalizing it for the sake of it you know that money has to be made that there has to be an infrastructure behind it that's actually not what it's all about it's all about that that part person created music and we want to participate in that experience and i think it's also important for musicians to to learn it's a bit, I don't know, like the more direct way, you know, and not being filtered through three, two or three instances of of that are uh, positioned before him. And you had get quite often you get nowadays emails of somebody who did two records and then they already expect Starlines flights for a travel party of three for one DJ set. Um, and you know that the 30%, 50% of the fee are interests of... of, of the logistics behind it. I'm not saying, you know, it's that part of the business, but I think especially in music that we're involved with, where we only talk about fees of like 300 euros, 500 euros, 600 euros, euros there should be more fun than uh, book, bookkeeping involved. And this, this is this is particularly what has changed like in the last three years, this professionalization. You should, you should just uh, look yourself as soon as you find an emerging artist. Quite often there's already like this kind of logistic behind it and um, I wonder when it happened and how this is a viable business model for all the people involved into that for me it's just quite often frustrating because you know we have amazing shows that don't happen because somebody doesn't have the experience to understand what we're offering there as somebody who's putting these events together do you see this as your major challenge moving forward 
Um, for me, moving. I mean, to be honest, on the other hand, you can say for every emerging artist that are, there are at least five alternative options if you like that stone cold. I mean, obviously for me, it's passion, so I want that particular artist because I kind of found a liking to him. It's just frustrating because it creates so much, you know, until you have this, the same, res there will be the same result in the end. Maybe some more money has changed the table uh, that it's not a significant amount of money, but it's frustrating for if you kind of passionate about music. And I think it's also quite, quite not helping for the development of musical culture, especially in cities that are not that exciting as Berlin, because I think that quite often they lose in the competition with the metropoles, especially if there are so many financial expectations from like booking management side of things, um, that great parties that could potentially happen, not happen because there's not the infrastructure. You know, it's like a small city. They could deliver passionate fans, but they just can't play in this pseudo professional game because there's no experience or infrastructure for that. And this is, I think is harmful uh, that things can't emerge in other places. We sort of spent the last nearly hour um, speaking about um, all these different things that you do, all these different jobs that you have. I'm guessing you don't have a whole lot of free time left. Is there anything though that you would still like to sort of get your hands dirty with? <laughs> I recently ended up looking on YouTube a lot of videos of those big ass Belgian, Dutch, hardcore GABA festivals, just wondering how you can put such extreme music, which there in, in those cities is, I mean, quite, quite popular, uh, into such beautiful production. I mean, you, you, maybe the music might be techy, the audience might be not kind of Berlin compatible, but it's just the side production of those events is just mind blowing. Um, I don't know, I would like, to be honest, like ultimately I would like to be, f to have the financial freedom to you know, the full curatorial financial freedom where I would like sit down and make things happen for the sake of having them, seeing them to come to uh, yeah, existence without having, you know, the problem in the back of your, like the, the challenge that it has to sell out. Otherwise, the whole association is completely fucked if this won't sell enough tickets. And right, so is, just having something happen for the sake of happening. Yes, exactly. And this is quite complicated. I mean, there is a lot of, and I think in art, especially in, in, I don't know the English word for it, but there is a lot of institutions to help making art pieces happen and switch such approach. And music, it's unfortunately quite limited to classical music nowadays. And there are not many structures that kind of balance that up um, and help projects being made just just because there's a good idea and you kind of want to see them happen, even though if they have no financial outcome whatsoever. And this this would be the ultimate dream. <laughs> <laughs>